Hey everybody, welcome to episode 22 of the Hey Cohen Show. Hey everybody, thanks for tuning in to Hey Cohen, where you have the questions and I give the answers. We have a couple of questions here. We have one from Instagram. Hello, Instagram. It's from DD Lee 79. DD Lee 79. Hey, Kerwin, as a manager, leader, and high performer, how do I tactfully navigate managing up the chain with a boss who gives little to no direction, guidance, or leadership to my team? Ah, there's a great book that I'd recommend for you to read. It's called uh, Extreme Ownership. And Jocko Willink, who wrote that book with Leif Babin, uh, they talk about the concept of leading down and leading up and leading down the chain of command. Um, and look, in any situation where you feel like there isn't information being fed down the chain, then you've got to lead up the chain. And the reason that we do this is twofold. Number one, you want to make sure you have all the information necessary to be able to execute at the level to complete the mission objectives that's required from leadership. But you also want to be setting the example for the people down the chain to also be leading up the chain when they don't have the sufficient information to be able to execute on the mission objectives at the level that's required. You know, in any situation where you apply pressure, you normally get some form of resistance. And resistance isn't necessarily a bad thing, nor is friction. Friction produces heat. Okay, resistance creates pressure. You put heat and pressure together, what do you get? You put it together, add a little bit of carbon, you get diamonds. And that's what's required. You know, I think good leadership, good management is sometimes about learning how to push back, especially when you're pushing back and pushing up the chain if you don't have all the information. Look, um, you know, people say, how do you lead up the chain? You simply push back, you lead up, you ask questions, you ask for more information. But you need to make sure that you do it with the right framework the right context so that you're not just appearing to be a nuisance. Like, there's nothing more than I hate than someone who asks a thousand questions. However, if someone can give me the pre-frame, if they can set the context of the reason why they're asking the questions that they are, so that when I'm answering those questions, I know that it meets a motive of mine, that it meets a mission of mine, it meets an objective of mine at a high enough level, I'll give them all the time in the world. No one likes answering a thousand questions for no reason. If you give people a reason to answer the questions, to give you the information, and you attach it to a value, then you're going to get much greater levels of buy-in and motivation for support. And if you're not getting motivation and buy-in for support, then you've got to start asking yourself the question, am I really in the right place to be executing with the skills that I have? Because if you are an elite performer when it comes to management, if you are an elite performer when it comes to leadership, and you are an elite performer all around, one of the most important things an elite performer needs to do is learn how to manage up the chain, learn how to lead up the chain, and learn how to lead down the chain and manage down the chain through not only the example, but also through the demonstration as well, which is basically the same thing said in a different way. That's that. Extreme ownership. Get yourself a copy right now. Amazon. Wonderful. We have one from Facebook. Hello, Facebook. Lerant Guess says, hey, Kerwin. Lerant. Lerant Guess. In Lerant. If there was a message you could give your teachers about your style of learning and how you could have been supported at school, what would it be? Don't have me in school? <laughs> uh, look, good question. For me, um, school just didn't really suit me. And I'm not sure if it was because of the suggestion that was implanted in early age, because I had a suggestion implanted in my head at a very early age that I am stupid. And as a result, that manifested into you know 12 years of absolute sheer hell. Like I actually really didn't enjoy um, going to school at all. Like it was actually something like to me it was it was very painful, and it was painful because I wasn't very good at it. And when you're not good at something, it kind of erodes your confidence. And I think one of the challenges I had with school is I wasn't very good at it. It eroded my confidence, and it also heightened the anxiety that I was already experiencing. Uh, creating you know much greater levels of anxiety and tension and, and you know overall stress, which kind of created a uh, um, you know a, a quite an explosive environment for growth that happened further down the line. So I don't regret it. But what I do know is I'm someone that doesn't learn through being um, shown. I'm not really someone who learns 
through um, being shown, being demonstrated. Like for me, I'll cut straight to the chase. The way that I learn is by doing. And so for me, the greatest way for someone to teach me in a school environment would be to actually do something with me. But the challenge that we have in school these days, they've got like, I don't even know what the school, the teacher to, uh, the teacher to uh, school kid ratio is. Like, 28 oh, I think it's even worse than that. I don't know, it could be 40 to one. I'm not really sure. I'm not qualified to speak on that. But what I do know is when I was in classes in school, you know, it was about 30 kids plus, 30, 30 kids, 25, 30 kids to the one teacher. And so, you know, you've got one teacher, you've got 25 kids, they're not going to be able to show every kid individually exactly what they needed to do. You know, so for me, I'm just not sure if school was really the right environment for me based on the situation, the circumstance that I came in there, the context that I came in there. But look, I did the best that I could with the, with the tools that I had and I don't regret it because the one thing that school did give me that I didn't get anywhere else was great socialization skills, great social skills, great communication skills, negotiation skills, uh, and also self-defense skills as well. <laughs> Twitter has a question for you. Hello, Twitter. Or actually, Toby Street has a question for you. Hey, Cohen. Toby Street. Toby Street. Hey, Toby. What's been the most impactful theme of wake-ups for you? For, for some, it's near-death experiences. Others, it's children. Others, it's spiritual and so on and so on. I know you've had a lot of these, but what has felt the, the most strongest or most consistent? Two. Um, I'm going to lump them into one. Well, no, I'll have two. One was near-death because I've had like seven of those. Uh, and they were quite, they were incredibly compelling. But what was interesting is the one that, you know, nearly dying seven times was quite, uh, you know, they're quite interesting situations to be in. They're quite, uh, you know, I call it feathers, bricks and trucks. Sometimes we have something tickle us to give us a message. And if we don't listen, sometimes we start getting slapped. And if we don't listen, then something big hits us. And for me, you know, near death seven times was one of those things. But what's really interesting, the thing that really moved me the most at a very deep level was actually when Noah was born. Like when Noah was born, that changed everything. Like for me, that changed the entire game. Uh, I still remember when um, the nurse came in and you know, basically uh, checked my wife, ex-wife for dilation and said, oh, we're going to have a baby. And I burst into tears. And then you know, literally maybe 15 minutes later, Noah's head was crowning. And when I looked at his head crowning, I burst into tears again. And like, to me, that was such a fundamental shift in my life. And I think for me, it was that personal responsibility. Because like, I love... I almost feel like I'm addicted to responsibility. I love to take responsibility. I love people who take responsibility. I think ownership is an important thing. It creates massive levels of empowerment. But when you have a little baby, like that gives you a level of empowerment at such a level that I'd never experienced before that it was really quite, I don't know, it was, it's hard to describe because when Noah was born, um, I just felt this incredible level of responsibility. And when that level of responsibility was there, like I felt like I had to do something. You know, and with, with, they say with great power comes great responsibility. But I'd actually reverse that and say with great responsibility comes great power. Uh, and when I started to really take responsibility for the fact that I'd become a dad, man, oh, I just felt like so much. It was such a wake-up call. Like it transformed. Like a lot of people see my, my, my fitness level now and they go, oh my God, he's just transformed overnight. No, this has been four years. Like I started this journey when my son was born. Uh, you know, it's been really accelerated in the last two and a half years since I've been doing intermittent fasting. But that was all generated, that wake-up call around health was all generated as a result of, uh, result of Noah. When I look at my business right now, all of this, this current structure and format, like I've been doing the same thing for about seven or eight years, but it wasn't until I found out that my wife, ex-wife was pregnant before I actually started to restructure the business in a way that made it more efficient, more effective, more streamlined, more lean, and actually gave me more leverage to deliver more value in more efficient and effective ways. So, you know, I owe so much of my success to Noah. Uh, it's just not funny. Like it was, the, it was the greatest wake-up call of my life. Not, not one of the seven near-death experiences came even close. Nolene J. Nolene, how are you doing, Nolene? I know Nolene. I managed. Yeah, okay. Good to see you on Twitter. I normally see you. I'm pretty sure I see normally see Nolene on Facebook. Instagram. Instagram. There we go. <laughs> Do you have any suggestions for bringing structure that allows the focus to be on execution? 
when there are many projects and team members needing your time. Yeah, planning. Like planning is the key to execution at a high level, especially in a coordinated environment. And I say a coordinated environment where you've got multiple people working at multiple time on multiple projects. There's got to be high levels of coordination. And the way that we create high levels of coordination, okay, that drive high levels of execution is by having a really strong plan. And plan for me isn't just sitting there going, okay, let's just make a to-do list. You've got to reverse engineer this. You've got to start with first and foremost, why does a business exist in the first place? Then break it down and go, right, what is our objective? Now your objective could be 12 months, it could be two years. For us, it's 10 years. Like what is it you're trying to achieve in the next 10 years? And then from there, you need to reverse engineer, okay, what are the things that need to be done in the next 12 months in order for us to get one step closer to that mission objective? Now that objective could be one week, it could be one month, it could be one year, it could be 10 years. But what are the priorities that need to be executed for you to complete that mission objective or get one step closer to that mission objective? And then from there, those priorities need to be delegated either by department, uh, but ideally by department and then by owner. And then once there's a level of ownership on those priorities, those priorities then broken down on a weekly basis into goals, which are smaller subsets, smaller chunks of those priorities. And then on a daily basis into tasks, which are smaller subsets of those goals. And then at that point, it is executed. We use high levels of social pressure to ensure and drive execution. And that for us is whereby, you know, not only do we plan every year as a group, as an entire team, but then we review, and sorry, then we plan also every quarter by department. And we then review and plan every month by department. We then review and plan by every week by department. We then review and plan every day by department. So we do a, an annual planning process. We do a quarterly planning process. We do a monthly planning process. We do a weekly planning process. And we do a daily planning process. And that, and that is all derived from the purpose, mission, the values, but ultimately the, pur the purpose and the mission, the priorities, which are then segmented by department, Okay, then executed on a quarterly basis, reviewed on a monthly basis, and then actually defined for execution at a goal and a, and a tactical level, uh, at a goal and a task level, which is tactical, on a weekly and a daily level by department. And when that information is being shared and creating in very high visibility environments, like if you're sitting down with five people in your department, you're going, okay, here are my three, uh, my three, my three priorities for the quarter. Okay, and from those three priorities, here are my five goals for this week that I commit to. Just by virtue of you sharing that information with five people, that's gonna increase the probability of execution by about five times because there's now what's called the Pygmalion effect, which is expectation. Pygmalion, the Pygmalion effect is whereby there is an expectation upon us from others to do certain things and perform at a certain level. And by the Pygmalion effect being in initiated, it increases the probability of execution. Uh, look, I don't know what the exact numbers are, but it's something like between six to eight fold because the, the social pressure that's required or that's acquired as a result of that expectation is really driven from us being mammals, social mammals, social, you know, herd mammals, social animals, whereby we don't want to be removed from the herd. We don't want to be rejected from the herd. And if we are congruent and we do what the herd wants us to do, then that's going to decrease the probability of that happening. So for us, it's really quite simple. Plan, plan and execute as a team and fucking just create high levels of transparency, social pressure, and then just hold each other accountable. It's not that hard. Well, it is actually, it's very hard. But once you get going, it's actually ultra simple. Great, we have one last question from you, from Joe Meringolo, he's on Facebook. Joe, how you doing, Joe? Hey, Kerwin, should an underperforming sales rep still be recognized for the effort if they're not hitting the goals, even though they are working hard? How do you feel about rewarding effort if the results just aren't there? Absolutely. Effort is the mainstay because it's effort that will ultimately produce the results. Um, don't get me wrong, we, we acknowledge results on a regular basis. 
but the way that we award our team you know, in this environment is we really acknowledge effort, but particularly as it, results to, um, as it revolves around our values. Like the more effort people put towards our values, the more successful that they become just by virtue of that. But one of the things that we've learned, you know, especially if you read the book Drive, The Surprising Truth About What Really Motivates Us, written by the guy called, uh, author called Dan Pink, where he essentially you know, pulls in a whole bunch of research and you know, uh, Chick, I think it's Chick Me Sent Me High, uh, Carol Dweck and a whole range of other research, social um, uh, and behavioral scientists have put this information together. And what we understand is when we, um, when we acknowledge the behaviors that we're looking for, we get more of those behaviors. Okay, and it's a, what we've discovered is when we actually acknowledge the effort, it amplifies the level of effort that people will put in. And so for me, I put an enormous weight on acknowledging people's effort. I also will acknowledge people's outcomes as well, especially when they complete that. And we do that in our planning sessions by acknowledging what we call the tick. But it's important also that you acknowledge the effort. And you acknowledge, like it's free, it's, when you look at the Montessori method, my son's in Montessori. One of the things that, you know, that we are coached as parents to do is when, we're working with, when you're working with the child, it's not, about, it's not about encouraging them to complete something, it's about encouraging them to apply the effort towards the completion of something. Because if they learn and, they, and if they become driven towards the effort, if they become acknowledged towards to be driven towards applying effort, the result is consequential. It's almost like when making money. If you focus on making money, nine times out of 10, you just fuck it up. But if you focus on the things that as a natural consequence produce money, money will just happen automatically and you don't need to focus on it. So it's not about focusing on the money, it's about focusing on the things. It's not necessarily about focusing on the outcome, it's about focusing on the things. And the things when it comes to the outcome is the effort. The more you focus on and acknowledge and support and drive the effort, the greater probability and possibility you have of people achieving the outcomes. Focus on the effort and you'll achieve more outcomes. Acknowledge it socially, publicly, transparently, and give genuine credit. It's powerful. That is it. Episode 22 of the Hey Cohen Show. Almost lightning round like that one. It was a little bit more tight, a little bit sharper. Uh, only had a small window to do this. For those of you who have a question, hashtag Hey Kerwin in the question comments below. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn. Smoke signals, carry pigeons, whatever you have, throw them in. Hashtag Hey Kerwin, whatever you want to know about life, love, um, whatever you want to know, I'm happy to hear and help you. But the question of the day is, what is your fondest childhood memory from school? All of you went to school, well, most of you did. I want to know, what is your number one childhood memory from school? Give me the short version, let me know below, really curious to know. Hashtag Hey Kerwin, say hi to your mum for me. Thanks for listening to Hey Kerwin. If you would like your questions answered, don't forget to use the hashtag Hey Kerwin on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn.